We are going to shift gears and go ahead and give you time to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we will be looking in around verse 22, will be our, our topic of discussion this morning with a sermon that I have entitled Gospel Community. Gospel Community. While you find that, I do, uh, I do want to say, uh, issue a public uh, thank you to those who were involved with Vacation Bible School this past week, uh, from our volunteers who spent a lot of time decorating, uh, to uh, Tim and Olivia and Beth who spent a lot of time uh, decorating. I know it took a lot of work and then to have that seemingly come crashing down uh, due to the virus, uh, I know that's got to be disheartening. So I do want to say thank you, and we appreciate the hard work uh, that goes into, uh, goes into um, putting on or, or hosting a vacation Bible school. So again, thank you for that. Thank you for uh, your hard work and your diligence there. Uh, again, with your Bibles turned to Acts chapter 2, I do want to focus in on gospel community. And so we are today right back in a pandemic-framed worship service, at least for, uh, for today. And I almost forgot what this feels like and looks like to preach uh, to an empty, uh, an empty sanctuary as it is. Virtual church has become a new normal to spread the message, message of Jesus Christ, but I don't think it is a new normal or at all, and I don't think it is a normal. But I am convinced, even as we meet together in this virtual way, I am convinced that it is just not the same as setting in a live, in-person time of worship. But, that being said, we do what we have to do to ingest the Word of God so that we might live out the Word of God, which is the context of our text today of gospel community. Just so you know, you might have been tuning in this morning looking to continue the uh, Last Things series through the book of Mark. I have put that series on hold until we return to in-person uh, in-person worship. And so whenever we come back together as uh, the sanctuary doors are open and as we worship in person, we'll come back to Mark chapter 13 and we'll ask the next question in the series, is this the Antichrist? And so we'll return to that once we meet for in-person worship. Worship. Now, I hope those listening in this morning through social media, and I hope that someone this morning who has been affected by the virus or have come pretty close to it, I hope this morning that you will take comfort. I want you to know that we are praying for you, regardless of how careful, regardless of how careless regardless of how carefree that you have been over the virus, I do know one thing through it all is that we as the church must press on in any way that we can. And I pray that you will allow me this morning to preach freely. And I pray that you will allow me the freedom 
to dig a little bit, to meddle a little bit, through the duration of the next few minutes that we spend together. And that being said, I hope that as the church, you have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church. I pray that you will give me opportunity to stir the pot just for a little bit. For I believe more than ever before that we as the church, although we are not all here present in this sanctuary, I am convinced today, now more than ever, that we need unity in the body of Christ. Now that sounds a little ironic since we are certainly not unified today and together for worship. But as a whole, I know one day we'll come and we'll fill the sanctuary again. But we must be unified and together. Why? Because we are on the same battlefield. I think of that song, we're on the battlefield for my Lord. We're on the same mission and we have the same vision. In fact, Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, says in chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. We all gather around this truth that there is one Lord, there is one faith, and there is one baptism. In fact, the Bible reminds us through the book of Acts, into which we will investigate in just a moment, the Acts of the early church. And there is a reason that this book is entitled The Acts of the Early Church. It is a history, it is a telling of the early church. So we, what we have is a description of the early church and not a prescription of the early church. This is what the church did. And throughout history, the church of the living God is at its strongest when it is together with the same purpose the same mission and vision. And the enemy wants nothing more than to stir us up against one another. The devil wants nothing more but for us to be opposed to a purpose, to a mission, and to a vision. But I must wonder, I've got to think about this, and hopefully you have too, I wonder how has it been that we have lost, as the body of Christ, that we have lost this most primitive and most foundational truth amongst the life and health of the church. And that is togetherness. It is with the framework of unity. It is with the framework of togetherness that I want to bring this message to you today. I want to speak to you on the topic of unity and how important it is for the church to display that they are together that they love one another under the watchful eye of our Lord. Number one, our audience is with the Lord Jesus first and foremost. But there is a watching world. There is a culture that is watching us to see how we live our lives when we are in the presence of one another. Are we bickering all the time or are we together? Do we show love towards one another or animosity and division? A.W. Tozer, in the pursuit of God, the human thirst for the divine, said this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? 
They are of one accord, being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meet together, each looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. In short, the closer that we are to Jesus, the closer we are to one another. And the closer we are to one another, the closer we are to Jesus. It is when that we have our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ that we are more in tune with each other. In fact, I really think about the commandments that were given. The commandments that were given was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, all that you have. And as we love God with our whole being, we will naturally love one another. So it is, if I've got my eyes on Jesus Christ, worshiping Him, loving Him, following Him, then that means that I'm going to love my neighbor as myself and we're going to draw together in unity and togetherness. In fact, it is when we are stitched together that we make an impression on the world for Christ's sake. So this morning, I want to speak to you also about knowing of your salvation. Because I believe that your certainty in salvation certainly helps bring unity to the body of Christ. So we, we love the idea of, of recovery. We love the idea of restoration. Uh, we love the idea of revival. And, and in October, and, and many times throughout the year, we forget that restoration and, revi and, and revival is an ongoing part of the disciples' life. In fact, in October, we'll hold our revival here and we often pray that the Lord would stoke the fires of revival and bring the right people in to preach the word and, and, to, and, and, that, and that not only will we hear the word, but apply the word and move out in faith and to engage the world that we live in. But it is more than just one, one notch on the calendar. It is literally a lifestyle of restoration. It is a, a lifestyle of revitalization. It is a lifestyle of revival. One cannot have restoration and spiritual revitalization if they are not hid in Christ to begin with. One certainly cannot have unity if they are stuck in an area of uncertainty about their salvation. So maybe right now you are struggling with the certainty over your salvation. And we want you to know that you know. We want you to be sure of your salvation, to be sure that you are saved. And you ha if you have been grappling with this issue of salvation, I do pray by the end of this message today that the Holy Spirit will purify you of that doubt, cleanse you of that doubt once and for all. And for those today who do, not, who do not know Christ as Lord, I pray that you indeed will be saved. So if you will, Hopefully your Bible is turned to Acts chapter 2. And we'll be looking right down, beginning with verse 22. Now normally, as we meet together in God's house, uh, I would ask you to, to stand. And I would say let's stand for the reading of the Word. And, and, uh, but of course we're meeting in our homes. But maybe in your home right now, 
many listening in, maybe you would stand in your living room or wherever you might be. You might be in your bedroom or wherever you might be at. Certainly if you're car, in your car driving, you can't stand there. But I'll ask you, if you will, let's stand together as I read this portion of God's Word in Acts chapter 2. Let's, uh, let's stand in unison together. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, the Bible says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He may be seated. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word and the word to our heart and to our mind as we contemplate what it means to live in gospel community. Now you do know that the beginning of that, verse 21 in fact, the verses do not say that all will be saved. It says, for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that, those verses do not say that all will be saved. In fact, the book of the Revelation displays that there will be some that are lost and that will be separated from the goodness of God forever. It doesn't say that you can save yourself. It does not say or does not present a gospel that says that I can save myself or that I can do something to inherit some merit for salvation. So I cannot save myself. It is not in myself. I have nothing to boast over. So let me ask you this. Does the verse imply that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ automatically applies to everyone? In other words, does it say that everyone will be saved? The verse doesn't say your tradition will save you. It doesn't say your baptism will save you. Simply put, it says everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Even in a descriptive book such as Acts, we find this is how one is to be saved because it borrows from the Old Testament and then moves forward in the words of the Apostle Paul that says the same thing in a prescriptive way. Acts chapter 2 is a chapter that demonstrates and shows what gospel community looks like. The unity of the early church is a very great example. It is foundational for the church today. It is foundational. But over the centuries, over the ages, humankind has done what it does best, if you will, if you want to call it best, in the local church. They have let Preferences dictate missiology. And what I mean by that, that we as a church have let our culture cloud our minds over who is worthy to receive the good news. And by the way, who is worthy to receive the good news? Who has the 
social clout to receive the good news. When the Bible tells us there is none good, no, not one. But we have let preference cloud our missiology. We have let preference cloud worship. We have let preference cloud many things in our lives. Ignatius of Antioch said, Take heed then, often to come together to give thanks to God and to show forth His praise. Why? For when you assemble frequently in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed and the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of your faith. The enemy would like nothing more than to single out the individual worshiper so that he might sow discord, so that he might plant doubt. It is when we come together with same mission, same vision, same same ideas, the same gospel, is when the enemy, the enemy trembles. So I want to just move through the text today, and I would submit to you that restoration only comes through the regenerate church. In short, ye must be born again. The book of Acts gives us a history lesson, for it is the Acts or history of the early church, the early lives of the apostles, and how God moved in such a mighty way in their lives, and how the gospel of Jesus transformed the whole landscape of the world by just a ragtag gang of misfits that turned the world upside down for the name of Jesus. It is written by Luke to his publisher Theophilus. Luke gives this investigative reporter's insight to the life-changing words of Jesus as they are lived out through the acts of the apostles and pointing to future disciples. Early on in verse 8 in chapter 1, his followers received the promise in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why is that important? Because you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and in all the ends of the earth. Now following this great promise, Jesus ascended and the church now awaits his return. We await the return of our Lord. We anticipate his return. The return of the Lord Jesus is imminent. But he has called us to a work too. Until he returns, he has called us to a work. He has called us to serve Him. And now the beautiful reality of all this is the disciples were so changed by the Holy Spirit, they were so changed by, by, by the Lord that they followed through with this command and Jesus had, had uh, met them together, drawn them together. They met together waiting for this promise of the Holy Spirit to come to pass on what we call the day of Pentecost. Uh, Acts chapter 2 is a very well-known chapter in the book of the Bible. Uh, here, I want you to hear this, church. It is, it is when the disciples were together waiting and anticipating a work of God, that was when God himself sent his Holy Spirit to dwell with his church. But it was when they were together, when they were waiting, when they were anticipating an act of God, God showed up. And I believe that that works today too. Anticipating God to do great things, waiting, anticipating in faith for God to show up. Listen, are you anticipating the Holy Spirit to lead you this morning in your home, to lead your family, 
to lead your family in maybe revitalization, maybe revival, or maybe even restoration. Church, are you expecting the Spirit of the living God to work and to save someone? Do you still believe that Jesus saves souls today? I do. I'm a firm believer that Jesus still saves folks, and I have been a witness to that. See, the Holy Spirit so moved in that place that the apostles and those in the room began speaking in an unknown language. They began to speak in tongues. Now, to the immediate audience, to the immediate context, the tongues were important. They witnessed that what had happened was indeed from God. That what they saw around them was from God. But the bigger principle is not the tongues themselves. The bigger principle is this, that God did what he said that he was going to do in never leaving them and never forsaking them. Sometimes we gloss that over, but that is the undercurrent of what is happening here. Sometimes we like to sensationalize the gift of tongues that we see in Acts chapter 2, but the underlining truth is God said that he would never leave them nor forsake them, and here we see this manifestation of this truth coming to pass. The disciples were unified, and they were waiting for the Lord to work. Do you, do you get that? Do you see that? There are many Christ followers today who are no longer following Christ close and clean because they have turned their backs on God. Now that doesn't mean that they are lost. It doesn't mean that they are uh, damned forever, if you will. It doesn't mean they have lost their salvation. I'm a firm believer that as a person has turned their back on God, that God will pull them back, woo them, if you will, back to himself. There are some today who may no longer follow Christ. They have turned their backs on God. While all the while, He will never abandon you if you are indeed in Christ. And maybe that's you this morning. And He is calling you back to Himself to be in fellowship. So the disciples, they were together. With the same mind, seeking the Lord to fulfill His promise, again in unity. Now, during this time in Acts chapter 2, very primitive in the birth of the church, I mean the very beginning of what we might call the New Testament, New Covenant Church. And at that time, there was no associations, there was no local association, uh, there was no denomination. And I want to say first and foremost, I am thankful that I am a Southern Baptist. I am grateful to be part of a Southern Baptist um, association, both state and local and also uh, worldwide or uh, if in, in the United States, our national convention as well. So I'm thankful of our Southern Baptist history. I am thankful for our Baptist, Southern Baptist distinctives, some things that we can be proud of. And there are other things that I think that we should and often be repentant of. But I've got to say, no matter what denomination, uh, no matter what association, I would say that the SBC as people of the book, I believe, the SBC will not save one single person. Denomination will not bring a person to salvation. They cannot save one person. A name on the membership role of the church will not save one single person. Now, I believe that if your name is on the membership role of a church, you must be born again. Your amount of, let's say, community service will not save you. It doesn't matter how many mouths that you have fed in the name of community service. 
Salvation comes from one genuinely calling on the name of the Lord, repenting of their sins and being saved. So they were together and filled with the Spirit of God that others took notice of this mighty work of the Lord. This being the birth of the New Testament, New Covenant Church. Because the people were genuinely grafted together. But it took a rebirth. Now, once the church was equipped and empowered by God, Peter begins to preach to the Jews surrounding them. And I would even imagine that his brethren, uh, his people, if you will, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people around, I would imagine there were even some Gentiles that were mingled in. Paul gives this brief description of what they just saw by saying, what you have just witnessed is a fulfilled prophecy that in the last days, the Holy Spirit of God will show itself in these ways. We will see dreams and visions. We find this in the minor prophet Joel's writings. But Acts 2, 21 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I would say to you that verse 21 is the fulcrum verse of, and really the fulcrum verse and prerequisite for all that is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Meaning, you must be born again. I would say that this verse is a reference to Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. As I mentioned that Joel also mentions dreams and visions. Now also Peter will reference Joel 2 and verse 32. That it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So salvation is that pivotal point. It is foundational. This would be reiterated later in the voice of the Apostle Paul who says in Romans 10 and verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile or Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what we find in that verse is a trade. Uh, trajectory from an Old Testament passage to a New Testament description to a letter or to the book of Romans, a prescription. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now that the groundwork has been laid uh, through the handwriting of, uh, of Luke to Theophilus, if you will, the actions of the Apostle Peter, Peter began to preach to those who would listen. And, and, and I would say to you that that mode of operation has not changed to this day. And the preaching is for those who will have an ear to hear it. And that has not changed to this day. In fact, sometimes I would find myself uh, uh, preaching and then there would no doubt be some folks who does not have an ear to hear and uh, something is said or done in in the service, God breaks up that heart of stone and they, they begin to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. So God does this most great, this gracious work, this magnificent work for those who would listen. Paul, or Peter began to preach. He said, men of Israel, as to remind them of this wonderful promise. He says to them, hear these words now, or do it now and gathers in closely to say, listen. 
He begins to share with them the gospel and how Jesus Christ came on behalf of God. Truly the Messiah, performing mighty works and, and preaching and teaching to them. If, we, if you recall in the book, uh, Gospel of Mark, there was people that had gathered all around Jesus to hear His doctrine, to hear His teaching. This, man's Je this man Jesus, who was the Son of God, was delivered up into the hands of criminals and treated as a criminal himself, although he had no sin. What is so amazing about this episode is that Peter is preaching to, to many of those people who figured that, that they were drunk, speaking in tongues. They said it's early in the day. They must, be, they must have wine or strong drink. and It seems as if they are drunk. But the glorious reality of all this is the beautiful gospel demonstrates that a, a few uh, delivered Jesus up to be crucified. As he says, delivered up into hands of men to be crucified. But the beautiful truth of it is this, because he is alive and he is risen from the dead, because we know that the sting of death could not hold him in the grave. And we have a multitude, a catalog of songs that sing of the risen and resurrected Lord. We gravitate around the Corinthian creed in 1 Corinthians 15 of the resurrection. The grave could not hold him. It could not keep him in the ground. And I can almost hear the apostle uh, Peter preaching. Uh, we prayed for Jesus the Messiah. We prayed for ages for the Messiah to show up. All all the words of the Messiah, all the miracles of Jesus, all the miraculous deeds that Jesus performed from the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle out of his hand, even all through life's uh, his uh, ministry, walking on, on water, healing the sick, everything in Christ's life and ministry at that one pivotal point in history was authenticated as being true when Jesus stepped out of the grave alive and alive forevermore. All the miracles, every word of Jesus was stamped as truth when he arose from the dead. So it is vital to note that even those who were of Hebrew origin, those who are witnessing the birth of the church here, could not even get on mission, cannot even serve the Lord, cannot in this day even lift one finger in the name of Jesus without being born from above or being reborn. They must be born again. They must know, as my preacher back home used to say, they must know that they know, that you know, that you know, that you know that you're in Christ. There are a few things in this world that I know we must have certainty over, and salvation is one of those. You can know. You can have certainty. We notice that Peter preaches, and we are told that there are some 3,000 people that were saved and would make a profession that Jesus is Lord. You, you notice what Peter did first after the Holy Spirit came upon him? He was once a broken, weak, and cowardly vessel who abandoned the Lord and even denied Him. He was broken, he was weak, who abandoned the Lord Jesus... Now a mighty warrior for the gospel of Christ. I remember hearing uh, Billy Graham one time said that God had sent him as a warrior for uh, the cause of the gospel. 
Peter preaches because the Holy Spirit has birthed him into the kingdom and he cannot do anything else but to tell what Jesus has done. That's how you know when God has really got a hold of somebody, it's hard not to talk about Jesus. It's hard not to tell what Christ has done for you. And I, don't, I want to be like that. I, I want to be that type of Christ follower that I can't shut up about what Jesus has done for me. I want to be that kind of, of Christ follower. And I cannot help but to tell the glorious riches of Christ. I cannot help but to serve the Lord Jesus in some way, pandemic or not. If we really truly believe joy to the world, the Lord has come, we will serve him in joy. Peter continues in his preaching. Now he spends most of his time persuading the people that Jesus was Christ, the perfect sacrifice. We've been looking for him, we've been longing for him. He has showed up and you've killed him. He shows how Jesus was from the line of David, which lined up perfectly with the prophetic scripture that reads in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. Then Peter began to speak on how David is dead. He is gone. David is dead and gone. His body was put in the grave. His body would even still be in the grave. But Christ has shaken the pains uh, and the sting of death. And this comes to fruition as we read the book of the Revelation. In Revelation 21 uh, verse 4 and 5. And in that the Bible says that our Lord will wipe away all tears of sadness and that everything has changed. He had made all things new. So he is preaching his heart out. He has been changed by the living Christ. The early apostles, the apostles who have seen Christ risen, they have been changed by the living Christ. I would imagine Peter preaching here in preaching, in the art of preaching, we sometimes use the term pathos. Pathos of preaching. The pathos of preaching would embody the passion of the preacher, meaning that the text, the pathos of the text, would, would come out in the passion or pathos of the expositor or the preacher, meaning that a preacher who has the text ingrained down within them, there would be some pathos or some passion that would come out in his delivery presenting God's word. And I could imagine that Paul was in this way, pouring out his heart, passionate over what he is displaying and in some regard expositing in front of his audience. In verse 32, he said, Peter said this, This Jesus God raised him up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this so that you yourselves are seeing and are hearing. So he is saying that what you have seen has become a testimony to what 
to what God is doing. It is authenticating what the Lord is and is doing. That what you are seeing and hearing is testimony to the power and scope of what God is doing amongst His people. I can almost sense the passion as He fervently contended for His brethren to see Jesus as the Christ. See, you have murdered Him. See, He is not in the grave. He reminds them of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures concerning the Anointed One. He says this in Psalm 110 and verse 1. This is a Psalm of David that says, The Lord says to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And so he preached to the church. Then those who were born again. And to those that would give him an ear. That Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And I'd imagine the more uptight, the more well-to-do, and those who would have said, what is this madness? Are they drunk on wine? I imagine the more uptight even, the well-to-do, the look down the nose at others, let out a huge sigh or gasp of, I can't believe that this, this uh, ragtag misfit uh, apostle just said what he said. In this speculation, I would say that the religious high order would say of Jesus that he was just a lowly carpenter's son. But Peter, I believed he loved his people. I believed he loved the Jewish people. I believed he loved them. He pleaded for them. He pleaded with them preaching and persuading. And at the end of his sermon, they asked him, what shall we do? Now, I have only had that happen one time in my ministry where someone would ask me right out of the blue, what must I do? How do I become a follower of Jesus? He instructs them to start the same place you always start. In the economy of God, you start the same place that it has always been the starting place at. You start with repentance. It has always been repentance, and that has not changed. When Peter finished preaching, when Peter finished uh, stepping on toes, if you will, uh, I, I believe as, as an expositor, as a preacher, I believe that Peter did what we would have called uh, in, in maybe a country vernacular growing up. If somebody really preached, they would say that they were shucking the corn. And I believe that Peter was shucking the corn here, stepping on toes, whatever you might call it. But I do know this, that the Holy Spirit was working. And 3,000 people were born again. The Bible says after that, that many souls were added each day after. Because it, was, it really it was the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God saved these people. But I also believe in the church that the Holy Spirit is a topic that we must discuss more often. We must not be afraid to talk about the Spirit of God. I believe maybe for Southern Baptists we think if we are going to talk about the Holy Spirit of God, we're getting too close to maybe the Pentecostal movement or the charismatic movement. I, I believe that we might need a little bit of that, that we might need to talk about the Spirit of God more often. There may be one here today who may never have professed Jesus as Lord. You might have been a lifelong member on the membership role, but never a member of the body of Christ. I pray today the Holy Spirit, just as they got 
He got a hold of the people back then. We'll get a hold of you today and save you for Christ's sake. You will notice those that were called out by Christ to be his disciples were in unity together. And the Holy Spirit got a hold of them and Peter preached. Became bold. The catalyst for this movement was togetherness. Now, God can save people on their own as they are individual. He can save people, and we know that God saves the individual first. The individual gets plugged into the body of Christ and serves together. It is those that heard the preaching, God's word, that were saved. So maybe for you joining in today, tuning in, you may need a refreshing. You may know the Lord Jesus. You may just need a refreshing. Maybe the thing that is holding you back today is a rift in your relationship with another member of the church. Maybe right now you need to pick up the phone and you might need to call somebody who you haven't talked to in a long time because there's a a rift, maybe some tension, maybe some unforgiveness there. In times like these, as the song says, in times like these, we need to build those bridges. We need to mend those broken relationships. We need to come together. And I've got to tell you, it will be tough. There might be someone that you have, not necessarily that you might hate, but has done you wrong or, or, or you have done wrong to another person. It's going to be tough to mend those bridges, but we do so for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. It's going to be challenging, but it's got to be done. We simply can't bury our head in the sand over such important matters. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness of someone. Would you be willing to to do that for the sake of the unity of Christ's church? See, it starts with regeneration, seeking the Lord. What must we do? The preaching of the word, being people added to the church daily, and then that church serving the Lord Jesus. There was an article printed in Christianity Today. This was an article that was printed way back in 19... I say that like it's way back. In 1993, there was an article that was printed uh, that said uh, of the character and of character and community and how the both are intertwined together of character and community. And the quote was this in, in, in the headline. It said, one can acquire everything in solitude except character. Let me say that again. One can acquire everything in solitude except character. And so we might have a time when we enter to a time of prayer by ourselves, quiet time with the Lord, reading scripture with the Lord. But I believe as we read God's word, I believe that we need community to help us in our character development as men and women that love Jesus and serve him. And really at the essence of this is discipleship and disciple making. Now I mentioned Acts 2 today as an example of gospel community that we need one another, we need to love one another in the name of Jesus. I want you to notice what happens in verse 42. They devoted themselves. Look on down. This is, this is how it looks. Okay, They've been saved. People have been added to the church daily. And, and we might ask, well, how does this play out? How does this... How does this play out uh, in the early church? And what must it look like for us today? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and prayers. So in short, they worshiped together. They sat under the word of God together. They fellowshiped together. They ate together. They broke bread together. They prayed together. And, And all came upon every soul. 
And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so, again, this togetherness, many signs were done through the early church. Verse 44, and all, it says, believed they were together and had all things in common. And by the way, uh, before somebody might say, this looks like socialism. This isn't, the, <laughs> this isn't the early phases of socialism. They gave freely. It was not taken from them by force. They gave freely because they all believed what Christ had said. They all believed that he was, uh, that he was alive. They all believed the gospel and had all things in common. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all because they had the free will to do so. It was not taken from them, uh, of course, against, their, against their, um, you know, their desire. It was they themselves saw a need and in their context they said, well, you know what? We can sell some things and we can help those who, have, who, who are in genuine need. Verse 26, Day by day. See, the early church, they met almost daily. The early church almost met daily. They attended the temple together. They broke breads in their homes together. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 47, and they worshiped. They worshiped together, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number daily Day by day, those who are being saved. And now I believe, we often pray for revival. We pray for people to be saved. But I believe, if we look at Acts chapter 5, or chapter 2, from 45 on, I believe if we seek to, to come together with these, uh, these commands, these imperatives, if you will, I believe if, if we mirror this some way in, in uh, our local church, I believe that we will see God add to His church daily. So I leave you with these words from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. These are the words from who is called the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He says, it is a face that Christians can rejoice in deep distress. It is a truth that if you put them in prison, they will sing. Like many birds, they sing best in their cages. It is true that when waves roll over their soul, they never sink. They have a buoyancy about them that keeps their head always above the water and helps them sing in the dark night, saying, God is with me still. And the sense of unity and the sense of togetherness can never, ever be abandoned. And the ironic thing about that is, we are not together this morning, but we are together. We are not here meeting in this sanctuary, but we are still together in this way. Let us never abandon the sense of togetherness and unity, even in the throes of a pandemic or severe persecution. In just a few short days from the day of Pentecost, there will be a great persecution for many years to follow like they had never experienced before. And they need one another to make it through these times. So what I want us to do right now, while you're in your home, I'm going to pray right here in closing. What I want you to do in your home right now with your family, maybe you're, maybe you're by yourself and that's, and that's fine too. If you're listening in, uh, I don't know if you can 
If you can kneel down next to your chair, your bed, your couch, or join together with your family, I'm going to pray for, for three things. And I'm going to list them. Uh, you have the you have the privilege of, of turning the live stream off at this moment and praying these things. Or you can pray together as I pray, uh, praying in your home as that final act of worship in your home from today's time together in God's Word. But I'm going to pray for three things. I'm going to give them to you. You can either pray with me, pray in your home, lead your family in this time of prayer. But here are the three things I want to pray in conclusion from Acts chapter 2 on gospel community. Number one, I pray for unity amongst the body. Unity amongst the body of Christ. Secondly, we're going to pray for salvation. For those who might not know the Lord Jesus, maybe even in your home, uh, maybe somebody that you know that does not know the Lord, we're going to pray for salvation. And then lastly, we're going to pray for rededication for those who have strayed. For rededication for those who have strayed. So at this moment, you can pray with me or pray with your family in, in your home. Let's pray together.